Remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning, which you'll find in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 4. We continue on in the exposition of this Gospel this morning, uh, coming to chapter 4, continuing with verses 1 through 13. I would ask that you hear and attend to the reading of God's Word, Mark 4, beginning at verse 1. And again he, Jesus, began to teach by the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him, So that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables, and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. And God said, from the record of Scripture in Genesis 3, And God said, Let let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Now throughout Scripture, the planting, germinating, growing, and fruitfulness of seeds, even contrasted with weeds, is used to teach truths about supernatural regeneration, being born again and truths about sanctified transformation, holiness of person as the fruit of justification. Now these two things meet us throughout Scripture, from the beginning of Genesis through Revelation, and the the revealing of heavenly worship. That is, God is to be worshipped and confessed as Creator and as Savior. And He even uses the evidence of His being Creator to reveal to us spiritual realities, heavenly truths, things that we couldn't know, the mysteries of God, the mysteries of the kingdom of God, things that we could not know by human wisdom and ability. He uses his own created witness to teach us about these things. We continue on this morning in Mark chapter 4, where we have straight talk about Jesus Christ as the gospel source, being uniquely Son of God. And here in chapter 4, Uh, Jesus Christ is presented to us as Lord, as mediator of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, and he's presented to us as creator, the uncreated God, further revealing what has already been revealed, that he is son of God and he is son of man. 
that theme continuing to blossom and uh, to open up for us. Uh, The first part of chapter 4 that we begin with this morning is verses 1 through 34. Jesus' didactic parables are used to reveal and to conceal his mysteries about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And I do want to point out, as I've said before, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God are synonymous. They're not two different things. It's used interchangeably. I also want to point out to you that the uh, preaching and teaching excerpts that we have, the episodes of chapter 4, are connected and continue on from chapter 3. Matthew says it was on that same day as the events of chapter 3. They're important because it elaborates and contradicts the Beelzebub blasphemy. Jesus was charged with being of the devil and doing his works in the power of the devil of Beelzebub. We talked about that even name being a superstitious name from Chaldean mythology, not from the Bible, and the way in which it uh, was um, charged against Jesus and the, the serious and solemn thing that Jesus had to say about that kind of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as being unforgiving and carrying on into eternity with judgment. And we go on then here in chapter 4 with Jesus elaborating his self-attesting kingdom parables that this is not about the kingdom of Satan, and his self-attesting creative powers. Jesus, at the end of this chapter, rebukes the storms like he rebukes the devil and the demons because Jesus is mediator of the new covenant as Savior. He is Lord. And Jesus is, in his divine nature, uncreated God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. So Jesus' kingdom parables reveal and conceal his mysteries about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Uh, We looked at this last week, and so I'm not going to elaborate it, but Jesus did not invent the parable form. But he takes and uses it uh, for God's holy secrets. He he uses earthly things to reveal heavenly truths to us that we would not otherwise know. Uh, Jesus identifies his use of parables to be about revealing his kingdom mysteries for his disciple believers. We pointed that out in the verses and what Jesus says about those disciple believers and how they can understand and have revealed to them the mysteries, God's holy secrets uh, of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus intends the use of his parables to also conceal his kingdom mysteries from disloyal unbelievers. And again, we have references here and Jesus even uh, referencing Isaiah 6 about those disloyal unbelievers and how they are... uh, continually hardened and calcified and and cauterized in their conscience because of their unbelief. And we used a passage from the Westminster Confession that I think is very useful, uh, chapter 5 and uh, section 6, as for those wicked and ungodly men whom God, as a righteous judge, for former sins doth bind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, and thereby whereby they might be enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin. We said this is exactly what happened with these scribes who came down from Jerusalem when they beheld the wonderful works that Jesus did and when they heard the teaching of what Jesus was saying that they, in their recalcitrant rebellion and hatred for God, they plotted his murder. And this is a means where God allows their hearts to become more and more hardened in reprobation, the mystery of the doctrine of reprobation. God gives them over to their uh, seared conscience, to their their, um, scarred and cauterized conscience, to hear and see the very acts of God 
and to attribute them to the devil. And so here the confession, I think, does a marvelous job. And, and we have the examples of Scripture. And God gives them over to their own lust, their bloodlust. They plot the murder of Jesus and the temptations of the world and the power of Satan. And it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God uses for the softening of others. Many others are gathered here. We're told that the crowds continue to grow. And they hear the wonderful words of Jesus preaching. And that Jesus preaches and teaches more than He heals and does wonders. That's something we need to emphasize. So we look at verses 1 and 2 this morning of chapter 4. And again... He began to teach by the sea. And the great multitude, it's growing and gathering around him. He now moves out to the seashore where he's been walking along and teaching many people. Now he goes out in a little boat and there's like an amphitheater where people are gathered around. We're told before they pressed around even in the house where he was. They couldn't even eat bread. Over and over the crowds are growing and growing and not listening to the uh, critics, to the detractors, to the haters. And so... A great multitude was gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat on it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching. So the public preaching and teaching of the new covenant gospel mysteries is ordained by God by command and example of Jesus. Another great multitude gathers by the seashore to hear Jesus who preached and taught to more people than he healed or did wonders. That's something you need to think about. Here in the New Testament uh, text, in the, the, the Greek of the New Testament text here, the verb form for uh, this uh, teaching, the act of teaching, the action of imparting knowledge and indoctrination. I know that's a negative word for us, but it's a good word uh, when, when the doctrine is good. Indoctrination. And then the noun form, the content or the doctrine so we have the contents, the doctrine, the act of teaching it and imparting it is indoctrination, something that God has ordained by the example and by the command of Jesus. That these two words come from the same root word in, in Greek and that carried over into English from whom we, we get our word didactic. That is teaching intended to have an effect on thoughts and actions. And that, that's what I am to be doing. In obedience to the Word of God. I am to be teaching. I'm to be imparting the knowledge of the, the Word of God. Trusting the power of the Holy Spirit to make it effectual to you. In changing and affecting and directing your thoughts and your actions. That's why we spend time expounding the Holy Scripture. And saying what the words mean and what the context tells us. In verses 3 through 9. The, the public preaching and teaching of the New Covenant Gospel Mysteries is not only by faithfully expounding of Holy Scripture, but also by conscionable hearing. Listen to verses 3 through 9. Listen! Behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on the stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. And when the sun was up, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
So this public preaching and teaching of the new covenant gospel mysteries is not only in terms of my responsibility to faithfully expound Holy Scripture. That's what I endeavor, endeavor to do. Not to give you my opinions, but to, to labor deliberately and intently in the Word of God. And I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would make it effectual, make it living and alive in your hearing, not just with your ears, but with your soul, with your mind, with your understanding, that you believe what you hear. But that's where there's also this matter of conscionable hearing. That's a phrase from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21. Not only the faithful preaching of the Word, but the conscionable hearing of the Word faithfully preached is a part of public worship of God. What does it mean to conscionably hear? It means to hear it in your soul, in your conscience. Not just with your ears. How are you hearing this morning? Jesus said, listen, I'm telling you a story. But it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I'm using earthly things of God's creation to reveal to you God's holy secrets and mysteries that you can't figure out or know on your own. They must be taught to you by God and by His Word. Do you hear it in faith? Do you hear it in your conscience? Do you hear it and do you believe? Are you those who are faithful believers to hear what the Word of God has to say? Now that's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, the parables of Jesus are often called, this parable, this one that we just read, is often called the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. I know you're familiar with it. Um, we don't have to be farmers to understand the meaning. Uh, this is about planting seeds, isn't it? And it's about where those seeds fall, and it's about the soil that those seeds are in and how it's received. Uh, as a matter of fact, you can draw an analogy, and I'll do a little bit more of this next week as we go to Jesus giving us the interpretation of this parable. But you don't have to be a farmer. You can just have a yard. You out, go out and sow seed in your yard, uh, grass seed. Uh, what, what an odd <laughs> uh, change from uh, growing uh, food stuff to having a yard, having grass, sowing grass. But nonetheless, you know when you go out and you sow grass or you have someone do it for you, that grass uh, seed gets scattered, doesn't it? Some of it may get scattered into your driveway and fall into the cracks. And there it will actually grow up. Uh, that's why we use weed be gone. Uh, some of it may fall off the curb. Have you ever noticed how soil collects in the curb between the curb and the street? And grass grows there because grass seed gets thrown over it? Or maybe in, over into your roses or into the edge of the yard where weeds grow up. So we don't have to be farmers to understand what's being taught to us here about sowing seed. But there's a much, much greater reality. Do we understand what this means about the kingdom of God? The mysteries of the new covenant and the kingdom of God. So to hear this parable in faith is to believe what it reveals about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We all have ears here this morning. But what Jesus is saying, do you have the ears of faith? Do you have the ears of faith? Are you gathered here this morning hearing the word of God and believing it? That's what it means to be a conscionable hearer. To hear it in your soul and to believe. Do you believe what Jesus said about the kingdom of God as he interprets the parable? Jesus himself identifies this parable as a seminal parable. It's a parable that, that is seed in itself. It's a seminal parable for understanding the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven or of God. Look at verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? 
That's a good question. Do we understand this parable? If we didn't have Jesus to interpret this parable for us, would we understand it? It must be by the Word of God. Scripture interprets Scripture. And we have Jesus giving us this parable and saying it's seminal and it's helpful for us to understand other parables. I'll say more about this next week, but parables are not allegories. And they're not fables. They're not moralisms. They are the mysteries of the kingdom of God revealed that we might believe the things that Jesus said, hearing by faith, deep in our soul, within our conscience. So look at verses 10 through 12. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. Now we said that there are more disciples than just the twelve. Jesus chose twelve out of the the greater uh, group of disciples. We don't know how many are gathered here, but uh, from the the crowd. Now he is alone with a a larger group of disciples, including the twelve. And he said to them in verse 11, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things are done in parables. So that, and here Jesus references uh, Isaiah 6, uh, 9 and 10. Seeing, they may see and not perceive. Hearing, they may hear and not understand. Lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. So we have the public preaching and teaching of the New Covenant Gospel Mysteries. It's either believed by a regenerated self-consciousness and a learned study of the whole counsel of the Scriptures as the Word of God, or it is just intellectually passed over. The difference is between faith and unbelief. And the regenerated self-consciousness. If we have been made alive, if we've been given ears to hear, spiritual ears, if our eyes have been opened with the eyes of faith to see, if our soul has been made alive, to the Word of God. If what Jesus teaches about the Word in the parable is true of us, that we're on the good ground and we sprout up and we live and we bear fruit of righteousness to God. That's what Jesus is saying here. And there's a bit of controversy about His referencing Isaiah 6. Jesus revealed the interpretation and the meaning of His kingdom mysteries to His believing disciples then and now. We're going to go on next week with verses 14 and following in part C. And we'll, we'll see Jesus interpreting the parables for us then and now. We are to believe what Jesus says about the kingdom of God. And what this parable teaches us and how it should encourage us. It should stir us up with faith. It should rejuvenate uh, our hope. It should bring us consolation and strong hope as we believe what Jesus said about this. As we look with the eyes of faith. As we hear with the ears of faith. As we believe with the heart that is beating and alive for the glory of God. Now, although unbelievers may hear the parallels of spiritual truths from Jesus' parables, unbelief is demonstrated by no fruit of repenting and confessing the guilt of sin and the gift of salvation by the fruit of the Holy Spirit's regeneration. And Jesus emphasizes fruitfulness here. That's one of the things that always gets me about this this, uh, parable, and I'm always quick to focus on it. The parable is about fruitfulness and abundance of the power of the working of the Word of God. And we are to see it by faith. We're to hear it by faith. Not with the eyes of our flesh. Not with uh, our physical ears. Even unbelievers can hear the parallels. Intellectually. Next week when we go into this uh, interpretation. And Jesus says, the seed is the Word of God. Unbelievers can hear that that parallel. Right? Right? Okay, here's the seed. The seed represents the Word of God. 
Unbelievers don't believe it. Thus, unbelievers. They don't believe. They don't believe that the word of God is anything like seed. They can see the evidence of seed sprouting and growing all kinds of things. But they don't believe that the word of God is greater than the physical seeds of creation. Because it must be believed by faith. By a regenerated self-consciousness that acknowledges this is the mystery of the kingdom of God. God's word is greater than the seeds that sprout all around us and grow. And we're blind to it unless God has opened our eyes that we can see greater things than what is in the world around us. Are your eyes open? Is there a regenerated self-consciousness? Is your soul alive to conscionably hear and believe that the word of God is powerful and brings abundant harvest? Well, that's where Jesus is going with the interpretation. So although unbelievers may hear the parallel of spiritual truths from Jesus' parables, unbelief is demonstrated by no fruit of repenting or confessing the guilt of their sin or the gift of salvation by the fruit of the Holy Spirit's regeneration. And that's where I think it's misunderstood about um, Isaiah 6. Mark, as well as Luke and Matthew, record uh, Jesus referencing uh, Isaiah 6, verses um, 9 and 10. He, he does this in application of the parable of the sower. And it's in reference to the power of the Word of God. That, that's why we pray, and you'll often hear me reference James, that we might receive the implanted Word, which is able to do what? The implanted Word, which is able to save our souls. We're not saved by worshiping the Bible. That's a, a criticism that's often made, but often made because we have a high regard for Scripture as being the Word of God, being uh, providentially given and pre pre uh, preserved for us. It was by inspiration from God. It's God-breathed. It's a product of divine power and creativity. It's not the Word of man. But we don't worship the Bible. We, we appreciate, we reverence, we, we believe that it is the, we're custodians of the treasures of God, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And what does the word of God do? It's like seed. We are to receive the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. How? Because the Holy Spirit uses that to witness to our conscience and to our mind. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. It's not un, uh, unintellectual or, or mindless. There are many... Um, offshoots that would represent it that way as being mindless and anti-intellectual. But it's not. It's supra-intellectual. It goes beyond our intellect. But Jesus emphasizes here knowing, understanding. It's a learned knowledge. There is a regenerated self-consciousness so that we have been enlivened to the Word of God. The Word of God germinates like seed to bring forth fruit. We are made alive to it and then as we study it, it's like nurturing. That's why the Bible uses so much farming illustration about nurturing, growing, weeding, fertilizing, tending, pruning. All of these wonderful illustrations that are used throughout Scripture to tell us there is a greater reality of the Word of God as the seed of God's truth that is used as God's means in revealing our salvation, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. So to understand Jesus' parables by a revealed and learned knowledge begins by faith, believing Jesus' mysteries about the kingdom of God in heaven. And it's my hope and my prayer and my uh, constant um, 
desire to be faithful in season and out of season to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God to you that you indeed believe by faith the mysteries of the kingdom of God, that it reveals about your salvation, that you hear it with ears and that you understand it, that you see it with eyes of faith and that you perceive it. You see what Isaiah from uh, the Spirit of God prophesied about God's judgment upon unbelief. This is where he says unbelief ends. Seeing they may not, uh, may not see it or seeing they may not perceive. They see the parallels but they don't perceive with faith. It doesn't go beyond that. They hear with their ear. As Jesus taught, people heard it. As I preach, people hear it. You can hear the parallels, but you don't understand the understanding of faith that goes beyond just the intellect. And in so doing, there is no demonstration of regeneration, of a change wrought within, of a germination of the seed of God, by the Holy Spirit of God, bringing the fruit of repentance and faith and in a holiness that is agreeable to God's justification. These are things that Scripture teach us. Routinely, there is demonstrated before us, and I, I use the words of institution to go along with the elements of the sacraments. Parallels, aren't they? Water is a parallel of the power of the Holy Spirit to wash away sin and to regenerate, to raise to new life. Water can't do that. Water is a symbol. I can tell you that's the parallel. I can tell you that's the spiritual parallel. Intellectually, you can understand that water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. But do you believe and know it? Do you confess it? That the Holy Spirit washes away our sin by the word of regeneration. Once again, the Word is God's agency through the Holy Spirit informing our mind but going beyond our mind teaching us with understanding something that's going on that can't be done by human means. The words of institution in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit I baptize you, child of the covenant or, or confessing believer. And there's a public identity with Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life and a, a, and a confession and demonstration of now being out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. As we regularly observe the Lord's Supper, you see and hear the spiritual parallels of the bread and of the cup of juice or wine. We use the words of institution to tell us that it represents something far greater. It's bread, but it symbolizes a greater reality. It's juice or wine. It symbolizes a greater reality. We don't get caught up in superstition. We don't say that that bread or that cup of juice or wine changes into anything different. We say the words of institution inform our mind and in conscience and our soul we believe in a greater reality. That by faith Jesus is more real to us than these elements are to our physical senses. If you don't doubt that that's bread, why would you doubt that Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you? Why would you doubt that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Why would you doubt that Jesus says, you will live with me, I'm going to prepare a place for you? I will not abandon you. If, if you can tell that that is either wine or juice in that cup, and the words of institution then say, from Jesus, this is my blood shed for you, why would you doubt 
that Jesus will not forgive your sins? Why would you doubt that the Heavenly Father would not receive Jesus' intercession to forgive your sins? Why would you hold on to your guilt and beat yourself up and not be responsive to say, Lord Jesus, thank you that I can walk out of here with the joy of my heart and the burden of my soul lifted up and I don't have to bear my sins and my guilt. You have taken it away from me. It doesn't make us um, senseless. It doesn't make us easy or uh, to try to treat sin lightly or trivially. If we rightly perceive these elements and their symbolism and the words of institution, it doesn't make us uh, fall into that category of, oh, let's sin that grace may abound. We can just go out and live any way we want to. It's what... Um, Augustine said, as we believe and confess and love God, then live as you will. Because when you love God, you want to live and obey and honor Him as our Heavenly Father. Sin is a real struggle. That, that to me, I think I've told you this before, theologically, I think remaining corruption in the life of the Christian believer is one of the greatest challenges in terms of our Christian faith. And that we don't fall into an easy kind of a trivializing of sin. But no, the Holy Spirit of God works and He burdens our soul. He breaks our heart. Why do you think the Scriptures warn us about not trying to run away? Because we want to run away. And sometimes we want to run away in shame. Not because we want to get away with it. I don't know, I remember as a child and maybe also as a parent, children sometimes would hide, not because they wanted to get away with something, but because they became ashamed and knew they were going to have to be accountable. Sometimes they ran away and you had to chase them down. But sometimes, when they knew that they were guilty, they would hide behind the door or go, try to go under the bed or go into the closet. They were already brokenhearted, tears already flowing because they were ashamed. You see, that's the way Scripture tells us of God's love for us and the way that He pursues and chastens us as a loving Heavenly Father. And so when Jesus quotes these words from Isaiah 6, he's not being hard-hearted. I think that the dispute here is just unfortunate. Un the dispute over these verses is unfortunate. And I think that the passage in the confession really helps. That the very means that God uses to soften the hearts, the means that He has appointed, because of stubborn rebellion, unbelief, and deep-seated hatred of God is used to harden the hearts of others. Some people's hearts are hardened to witness baptism or to hear us reference baptism. Some people's hearts are hardened to uh, be warned about the Lord's Supper, to see the administration of the Lord's Supper, or to even hear that we believe in the administration of the Lord's Supper. But God uses those things in the life of faith for true believers to bring us closer to Him. He's revealing the mysteries of the kingdom. It's like Jesus is bending down and whispering in our ear, I want to tell you a secret. Here are God's holy secrets. But you don't have to keep it secret. You can tell everybody. Amen. Do you believe God's holy secrets? Do you believe the mysteries of the kingdom of God? We're going to hear Jesus tell us more about that next time as He unfolds the uh, parable of the sower for us and tells us 
what it means and how we're to understand from this how we are to uh, further go on as we will in this chapter about other parables of the kingdom of God. Our parting hymn this morning is hymn.